You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by Jack Bryan, who's a filmmaker, and his latest film is a documentary, Active Measures, which is in some limited theaters now and out all over on several streaming services. So, Jack, thank you so much for joining us here on SpyCast. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me on. So let me let me ask you, especially considering how fast the news is moving surrounding the Russian involvement in the 2016 election, what made you want to tackle such a complicated topic, uh, particularly a movie where it takes about a year to make this kind of thing? Well, I think that it, it was the fact that it was such a complicated topic that made us want to take it on. Because even when we started this in um, you know April, early April 2017, a lot of really important and good stories had come out about this. But it felt like it was a bunch of names and it was a bunch of sort of dates that would be lost on people. And we felt that it was really important to sort of put it together in one place uh, where everyone could kind of see all of the strands of all these operations. Because I think a lot of people look at what happened in 2016 as a single intelligence operation, when really it was several ongoing operations that were then turned towards the 2016 election. And so we really wanted to show how those started, with whom and why. Well, I mean, even though you put it all together, it's still extraordinarily complicated. I mean, I have a, I have a background in the Russian language. I have degrees in the history of the Soviet Union and Russia. But for many people, the names, organizations, history can be dizzying. Yes, it was, and it was. I think it was at first, but I mean, I, I think that uh, for me and, and my partners, we are sort of geeks in this stuff. Uh, uh, for me, especially American espionage history, is a, is a thing that I'm, I, I think is fascinating and love reading about. Uh, and so I think that you know, while it was difficult, we sort of put together piece by piece, and a lot of things helped. That the biggest thing that helped was just creating a one document that we could go to and ended up after about a month and a half or two months being about 160 pages where it really just laid down the narrative of each thing. So anytime we had to say like, 
oh, is that person in our narrative already? We could just look at the document and, and creating it as a narrative story as we were building it. And, and so that was really helpful in terms of really unwinding it and not having to have it all in our heads all the time. You actually come to this story from, from a somewhat unique perspective for an average random filmmaker. You, you've met Donald Trump. Your father knows him relatively well as part of like the the wealthy New York establishment. Did that shape the, the decision you made to want to do this? Was that a reason you wanted to dive into this kind of a project? I, I think it gave me uh, some sense of confidence just because being around that circle. And obviously, my, I just want to point out, I'm, my family is not is that sort of that level of wealth. We're sort of uh, we, we've been friends with them socially in New York, but it's not like we're you know, billionaires. But just having been in that in that circle, uh, I had heard a lot of rumors of Donald Trump and the Russian mafia going back since 2008 at least, um, and so it, it fit. It fit with everything that I'd heard. There was always rumors about Russian mafia involvement in Trump real estate. Um, and so it just that, that I think was the biggest part of it, where it, it, it seemed to fall in line with the pattern of behavior that I had heard about and observed for many years. So More I heard about than observed. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I'll be honest with the listeners. When I read your biography for the first time and, and some of the contributions your family has given to the Democratic Party, I assume this film would be a bit of a propaganda hit piece on on the president. And I, and I did watch it. Um, it it's surprisingly not. Um, and, and Russia really is the primary focus of this movie. And, and for the listeners out there, before you send me nasty emails about, you know, I'm destroying the country because I'm a communist liberal sympathizer, watch the movie first. So I think a lot of people will be surprised at how, you know, this could have gone in a very different direction. I think you've done a very good job in reining in some of the supposition that's out there. Thank you. That was a real, real task of ours. And I, I think that part of the reason, it, it, and I, I, that was the feel that I hoped it would have, is, is that we really do have a very bipartisan cast. I mean, not everybody, because I was a politician, has an R or a D next to their name. Uh, it, there were a lot of them were Republican think tank people, uh, Republican advisors to candidates, and so, uh, and you know, some journalists. And so it was. I think that that created a balance for us where we really knew we were never trying to delve into the political. You know, I mean, to, and to an extent, a lot of this was because Republicans, and I, I say this, yes, I'm being liberal, but Republicans have historically been better on this issue for the last 15 years in terms of uh, Ukraine, in terms of Russia um, meddling in, in its neighbor's uh, you know, elections and its, its just government uh, and in their economies. Uh, I mean, I think that that is, that is waned, obviously, unfortunately. But one of the reasons we had to go to so many Republicans is that they had been better on this issue. Yeah, I remember Mitt Romney making, you know, a lot of us on the left laughed when Mitt Romney yeah. said Russia was the primary threat to the United States in the election against President Obama. And it was like, oh, you're so stuck in the past. Absolutely. And also, I think that we didn't really want this to be a film about hand-wringing. Right. We wanted this to be a film that really explained uh, an operation. And if it had to fit in any genre, it's more of a thriller than anything else. Uh, and so we, we didn't want it. We also we didn't have time to be like, oh, he's such a bad guy. We had to make a rule very early on where it's like, I don't care if these guys are you know murdering children. If it's not related to Russia, if it's not related to uh, espionage, if it's not related to our topic, we're not going to even address it um, because there is so much of that stuff out there. You can get lost in it. Right, and, and it's clear you've you've hit a nerve. I saw a, a, an interview that you gave where you received anonymous threatening phone calls and hacking attacks, and you were even followed at one point? 
Yeah, yeah. That was all, most of that stuff was really early on, though. And actually, we've kind of heard other people that work in the space say similar things, which is that uh, when the Mueller investigation started, a lot of that stopped. And uh, listen, no one ever says, hey, I'm following you because I work with the Russians. So I don't know who was following me. I don't know who was leaving those threatening voicemails. That's my suspicion. Uh, and I think it was because we were emailing with the Senate and the House a lot um, and just trying to book interviews and get information. We were meeting with some intelligence officers. Uh, and so I think that we just kind of flipped on the radar. And then once more investigation started, my suspicion is that we flipped off a bit and they had bigger fish to fry. Well, I think what was crazy from another interview, I, I maybe it was a different one, where your movie hadn't even come out yet. You just had been announced at a documentary, I guess Hot Docs is the name of it. And your IMDb score for a movie that had never come out was actually being lowered because bots were and trolls were signing on and giving bad ratings to it. Yes, absolutely. We have we get complaints. I mean, not complaints. We get we get people who are in the film and people who are sort of associated with the film uh, noticing online that they their troll activity and their bots activity goes up every time they mention the film. Uh, and so we definitely they they seem to think we've got something. <laughs> uh, there's definitely there's been a couple of RT articles, a few Sputnik articles that have gone after us. Uh, there was some very, you know, there was even one really bizarre review that uh, gave a very similar uh, review to us. That was a very negative review that it also gave to the comedy Death of Stalin, almost like word for word taken from it. And every film that seems to say negative things about Russia, this reviewer gives a very similarly worded review. Uh, and so that was one of our, maybe our only negative review, really, one of two uh, out of, you know, dozens. And so uh, it was, uh, yeah, there's definitely a lot of activity on their end. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have an impressive list of interviewees on, on this film. Um, some of them former CIA, some of them some are former State Department. You have people like Mike McFall, who was the ambassador to Russia, people like Secretary of State at one time, Hillary Clinton. And John McCain. How did you get some of these big names, the Clintons, the McCains, the McFalls? Yeah, so that was a real task, obviously. And my our, one of our producers, uh, Marley, who was sort of in charge of um, getting uh, those. My other producer, Lord Du Bois, just sort of ran the set and ran the production. But Marley Clements was largely in charge of getting us the cast. And her approach was one is we are making a film largely about Russia and let's not go around being like, hey, this is a Trump film. Obviously, we let people know. We didn't avoid it. But to, to, in our own minds, also as we were making it, really remembering, as, as you pointed out at the beginning, like this is a film that's about a Russian operation. Uh, and then the other thing was we approached their, uh, a lot of the think tank people and a lot of the guys that people had worked for them. For example, we approached uh, uh, Richard Fontaine, who worked for McCain, and we, he was helping us out with the film. And so when McCain's office saw that Richard Fontaine was on board, they realized, okay, well, this is a guy who's on the ground there in, in Eastern Europe especially, who really knows the deal, who's not going to be associated with a project that's just trying to say the most salacious and outrageous thing. Uh, and I think that that, that built our credibility. Um, and so, yeah, I would say that was the biggest, one, biggest part of it. So it's it's not hard to notice that you didn't interview Paul Manafort or Steve Bannon or or Roger Stone or Carter Page or anyone else. You clearly made a decision not to do that. Why? Well, we first of all, I will say is that we invited every Republican in, uh, in the Senate to be interviewed. Uh, all of them told us that they were busy that day, even though we never gave them a day. <laughs> uh, so we did certainly do some outreach. Uh, I, I didn't want to reach out to Carter Page or because that was a conversation. We, we did reach out to uh, Mike Flynn. We were talking back and forth about the interview. Uh, then that went dead. I think his lawyer freaked out. 
Uh, and so we definitely wanted some people, but I didn't want to have somebody there that was going to lie because we had so much information to convey. We had so much that was just on the public record already that I didn't want to have anybody come on and say a thing that I would then have to explain why they weren't telling the truth or why this was actually the thing. Uh, I wanted our, our interviewees to be unimpeachable. Um, and yeah. Well, certainly, I mean, if, if you wanted to come at this from a certain perspective, you look at someone like John Podesta, who is a political, you know, he's a political animal. He's not a former State Department official or former CIA. Certainly some of the people you talk to have a political agenda. How do you reconcile that? And that's, that's a good point. What we tried to use them for the most was for things that was specifically they were in the room for. Right. So for Podesta, the main things he talks about are how he found out his account had been hacked or what that process was. Uh, we don't really use him for things that he wasn't there for. And that was kind of a, a rule for everybody. Like Hillary Clinton, for example, we use her m much more as a State Department uh, official, really, and speaking about her time than Secretary of State, than we do using her during the presidency, uh, and or sorry, during the election. <laughs> and so I think that that was, that was an important uh, part for us to, to hold on to. Is, is, was this the person that was in the room that would know this information, as opposed to is this person giving an opinion that they would like us to think? Right. Um, and, and so, and, and listen, that, that is, and the other part about it is that we had to do an extensive, extensive legal review. So we had to sell the film, and if you're going to do that for a documentary, you have to have a lawyer write, um, give you an insurance claim, basically saying that you haven't, you know, nobody can sue you, or if they do, we'll back you up because everything in the film is true. Uh, and so going through that process, really, I mean, we, we didn't have to change anything. Every, they approved everything, but we that that kept us as well, sort of our feet to the fire in terms of making sure that everything was not just true, but that we could back it up. Um, and that we could basically show that there was no other way that that happened. Well, let's take a dive. We talked now several times about how this is really a movie about Russia. So let's take a deep dive into that. You actually kick off the documentary with an in-depth look at who Vladimir Putin is as a man. This might sound like a, a toss-up question or you know, a softball, but it's important that we talk about this. Why is it so important to understand Putin as a person, like going back to his history? Well, I think that the core reason, and actually this is perhaps more true for Putin than anybody else, is we know so little about his backstory that what we know comes from him. And so what he gives us gives us a really good glimpse into his head and what he wants us to think uh, and who he wants to be. Um, you know, I, I think that, that there is a, a ongoing and uh, molding and, and constantly morphing myth that Putin puts out about who he was and who he is. Um, and I think that uh, the, the myth that he sort of puts out is is very telling in terms of who he is as a person. I mean, his origin story really is from when, not from the KGB or from FSB, but when he was a deputy mayor of St. Petersburg, that's really where he kind of comes to fruition. Yes and no. I mean, that's the thing is there's so many weird little sections, like that little that judo click that he was in uh, when he was like 15, the the head of that judo uh, department was kind of a gangster and was very close with uh, Yasav Ivankov, who runs the Russian mafia in, in, um, in Brooklyn in the 80s, uh, ended actually living in Trump Tower. And so there's these weird, like, early connections, and those guys end up forming a huge Russian uh, mob organization. The, there are several members of that judo squad that are currently billionaires. Um, and so I think that, yes, I, I agree with you. I think that the deputy mayor of St. Petersburg is 
the most important sort of section. It's where he has a lot of power. It's where he, he is using his network uh, incredibly effectively uh, in terms of and imports and exports being an incredibly important part of what's happening in that country and that position having a lot of authority over that. But I think that the far, it's an accumulation from his childhood in addition, though. I, I think that there is, I don't think that he was you know, destined to become that thing, but I think that when he is igniting those old networks in St. Petersburg, a lot of those were people that he knew from his days in judo. Yeah, I mean, the, the reason I honed in on that is this is really the time where you kind of see him pulling these people around him, the former intelligence officers, the people who become oligarchs, the organized crime people who are st- – this is where he kind of turns this 100%. into a clique, into like the Putin I clique. Completely agree. A hundred, a hundred percent, absolutely. That is the core sort of period of his political life uh, and him becoming a, a real serious politician, obviously. Um, and I think that it's, it's, there's also, what's interesting is, is the sort of uh, the disconnect. But obviously there he's working for a, a liberal a subject who's more on the sort of, you know, uh, quote unquote Democrat uh, side of things, whereas he is sort of goes the other way with it. And I think that there's a degree of, my suspicion is that there was a degree of cynicism that was already there, but that uh, he really uh, took off during that period. Um, I mean, maybe it was already there all along, but I just, I, there's, a, there's an interview with him that's really interesting, him talking about basically at least his idea of subject sort of disregard for uh, norms. And uh, it just, it, it felt significant to me saying that, but maybe I'm overlooking because I think that you can probably scratch it farther back and find it farther back too. But yes, the deputy mayor position is incredibly important in his life and his development as a politician. And uh, yeah. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Some people, whether the media or maybe down the road historians or whomever may be looking at the beginning of this period, how to explain 2016 by going back to maybe 2015 or going back to 2014, you kind of trace it back to Ukraine in 2004. Why is it important for us to go that far back to understand some of the beginnings of what happens two years ago? Yeah, I think 2004 was a real hinge point. It was probably the, the first big hinge point, the, the first time that uh, in a sort of post-9-11 environment that American foreign policy and Russian foreign policy kind of came head-to-head uh, where um, – they got heavily involved, obviously, uh, in the election. There's hacking. 
there was a lot of meddling. And that, that's also the first time, not, not the first time really, but a, a time where we really see Putin attempting to do some meddling and it actually kind of blowing up in his face. Uh, and so we see that as, as sort of um, uh, an important point because we see the motivation for what he ends up doing, but he doesn't, hasn't quite yet figured out the means of doing it. And most of us may remember this is this is the Yanukovych versus Yushchenko election where Yushchenko is poisoned and he's disfigured and leads to the Orange Revolution. I mean, I remember when that happened. I certainly didn't see any like major strings being pulled from Russia behind. I knew Yanukovych was tied to the Russians, but I think most of us didn't see this as the kind of the beginning of something. And it's, it's interesting to see how how you tie it into everything else. Yeah, I thought that was, that was an important part for us. Uh, I think that Georgia, obviously, we showed the film. That's that's obviously another important thread. Um, but yeah, I think that what was important for us for that sort of period of the film is to show almost the development of his political warfare techniques. That you know, a, a lot of what we show in the film, active measures, obviously goes back to Soviet times. They were trying to do this in the 30s and then again in the 80s. But the uh, the means of which they figured out how to do it in a modern context and really figure out how to refine this technique. And I, I don't think 2016 was their plan at that point. Right. I think that they just started to realize how to do it in terms of flipping an election for a foreign country uh, and then got good at it. <laughs> and we, so, uh, I, and I think that, that that led to 2016 as opposed to some predestined plan ahead of time. Yeah, and you see, like, the Estonian 2007 cyber attacks is kind of a warm-up for this. But you mentioned George in 2008. It's extraordinary how many elements in 2016 we saw eight years earlier in Georgia. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that, the, the ones that we really show are, are more the parliamentary elections in 2012, because after the invasion in eight, that was the real lesson learned camp, campaign, yeah. because they actually used military might there, and it was much less effective than I thought it would be. And uh, and so that's that was really the moment where they're like, okay, we need to really figure out something here. Uh, and that's when they turned the election um, meddling program onto Georgia. And, and yeah, I think you're absolutely right. For me, that's the most one-to-one analogy. Um, I mean, I think there's a lot of them, but the, in the film that has the most consistent overlaps, whether it's the, the billionaire who's never been in politics running, uh, the claims of foreign birth of the party, the calls of criminals, um, there's a lot of overlap there. And, and so that was probably the scariest thing that we sort of found making this film. Well, it's, it's the use of fake footage, quote-unquote fake news. Russia today as a kind of a propaganda element, pushing far-right anti-democratic views, using people like Alex Jones to kind of push these ideas. But the, the, the billionaire saying, wouldn't it be nice to get along with Russia? Uh, I yeah. laughed out loud. I, <laughs> like, that sounds well, familiar. And, and another thing that's important to remember is that it's not just that they have, you know, they have the bots there as well. And they, but it, what's important is that the bots and the trolls are mirroring what the guy, what the candidate is saying. And in that way, what you have is you have over here, you're seeing online or in Eastern Europe pamphlets, you're seeing these sort of incendiary things that nobody else seems to be talking about. And then this one guy comes out and actually says those things, and it creates the illusion that this is the one guy telling the truth. So it's really important that that messaging works hand in hand. Uh, and that's the hardest thing to hide. In the in-between time, we go back to Ukraine because Yanukovych makes a comeback and he's assisted in this comeback by a, a person that a lot of people will find familiar today, 
uh, and it's because he's in lots of legal trouble. Um, and that's Paul Manafort. Yeah. So Paul Manafort, it's actually funny. We, we, conduct, we conducted our final interview for the film in September of 2017. Uh, and so that was when, you know, we have a sort of, by October, we had sort of a cut. Uh, and, you know, most people really responded very well to the film, uh, but a lot of people kind of felt like, well, this seems like you're making a lot of accusations. <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, I feel like these guys would be in prison. Uh, and then when, because a lot of that was Manafort laundering money and Manafort doing a lot of sort of dirty deeds in Ukraine. And then when he got indicted, I think that was a huge moment, uh, obviously for the, for the country and the world. There's also, uh, we saw, noticed an immediate change in people watching kind of the film where it was like, oh, wow, yes, this, this seems like you're onto something. And every, you're talking about things coming out all the time. We've been very lucky that we haven't really had to add anything. Um, because first of all, there was just so much there, um, but we really worked hard at getting it, trying to get it right. And so, you know, when things come out in the news, it's usually confirming something old. Right. Now. Well, um, there, there certainly hasn't been anything that's come out that has disputed what you've done. I mean, there, there's obviously the chance that tomorrow there could be, but you know, as of when you finish this movie till now, there, there, it's it's still holding up relatively well. Yeah, I think better. I mean, I, I think that. Our, the, one, the article that I was happiest about coming out was the New Yorker piece last week about the uh, Alpha Bank Trump Tower server, because that, that was always the one that people would bring up to us as having been thoroughly debunked, and you know it's not really, there's nothing there, it was spam. Um, and that had been kind of quiet for a long time, and we just kept looking at it, kept talking to people, and everything that we heard and everyone we talked to was like, no, this is not, that's not, that couldn't have possibly been that for a lot of really good reasons. Uh, and so... Uh, I think that as certain things come back, they kind of enter the mainstream more, and um, so that so that that we like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we've talked about how Russia is, but trying to kind of assert itself on the world stage, and I think that unless you are a complete ideologue in, in either side, uh, it's impossible to say that Vladimir Putin did not have it out for Hillary Clinton, uh, not just for in 2016, but long before that too, because of when Putin comes back to power. His prime vocal critic in the world is Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Absolutely. And uh, and also, it's important to remember that she is doing that, and Putin has to know this. She's doing that as the Secretary of State. Right. She was calling that out as it was, an, it was a statement from the Obama administration. And, you know, we talked to uh, Daniel Fried, who's a really brilliant guy, former ambassador to Poland. He's the longest-serving uh, member of the State Department in the United States history, um, and he was uh, Obama and Trump's uh, sanctions coordinator. Um, one of the things he talked about is that, uh, you know, Putin always liked to blame women, either Condi Rice or Hillary Clinton. Uh, and so I think there's an element of uh, it's easier for him, he feels it's easier to go after women. If it's not just straight misogyny, which it might be, I think that he thinks women are easier targets. And I think that helped. Well, I think there's clearly there, there's some fear in what Putin's doing also. I mean, if you look at Ukraine in 2013 with the Yanukovych being ousted, um, you know, the, the seizure of, Ukra of Crimea uh, and what's happened in eastern Ukraine. Too, I mean, it really reinforces this idea that that Russia needs to turn to, you know, use the term asymmetrical means. Hybrid warfare is kind of the fancy way of saying that because they just don't have the power to do much else. Well, they don't have the power to do much else, but they insist on a, on a large degree of control over the near abroad and the countries around them. And they want, and they, they insist on massive corruption 
uh, throughout Europe. Uh, and so I think that while it's true, like, yes, they're doing this because it's all they have, um, it's all it's all they have to do corrupt works. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, uh, I think there are, you know, Italy has a bigger GDP, but they're not going around doing this all over the place. Uh, so I think that, yes, it's important to keep in mind that they're doing this because they have no other options except for just not doing them. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that doesn't work for him if he wants to become the czar. Exactly, exactly. One of the things I thought was interesting is that you got Bernie Sanders, I guess his former campaign manager, to talk to you about uh, the post-DNC. No, it was, oh. it was a, it was, sorry, it was, it was an organizer who worked for Bernie Sanders. Organizer who didn't, didn't have an, yeah. So talking about the after the Democratic National Convention, about how the Bernie websites were used as a disinformation platform by Russia. Mm-hmm. Is that something that... Yeah, that, yeah sorry, right. Yeah, that's... I mean, listen, as I guess we catch over the bag of the fact that I'm a Democrat, but that, so that's the part that actually concerns me the most, uh, is that I think that from what we've seen is that the Russians seem to have more penetration politically, like amongst candidates in America, but I think that they have at least equal penetration in terms of messaging on the left. Um, and so I, I think that um, I, I'm very concerned by that. I think that that's a thing that is ongoing that hasn't been dealt with. And the um, influence campaign on the left, I think, is the, the part of this that is being forgotten and should not be. Because I think that um, if, let's say, we completely address this in the sort of Trump world, uh, if there's an opening on the left side and we've, it's been extricated to Republicans, they can move very easily into the left wing. So this is not a partisan issue. <laughs> no other reason than that, uh, and it's it's a serious issue on both sides. Well, I mean, you saw them do that with uh, telling, trying to get Bernie Sanders voters not to come out and work on the Jill Stein campaign and try to get her uh, to influence left leaning voters, like some prominent a- uh, actors who need to not ever talk again as long as they live. <laughs> <laughs> What, what I thought was interesting is is now we're starting to see, and since you wrapped this film, more information come out about things like the Internet Research Agency and Cambridge Analytica that you mentioned in the film, but there's been a lot more information that's come out since you wrapped it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the yes, certainly there has on both of those, uh, though I don't know that we would add anything at this point. You know I mean? There's, there, because there are so many uh, different tunnels you can go down with this, we really wanted to kind of top line everything. So, you know, the way I look at the film is it's almost like there is a much deeper dive you can do on any single image we show, any person we show. It's all very intentional. You know what I mean? Like we couldn't fit Peskov in there. So then we're talking about who's influencing Putin. We show a picture of Putin and Peskov. You know what I mean? Right. There's a a density that we had to really adhere to in order to get all this stuff across. Uh, And so I don't know that we would have had more time to deal with uh, the uh, IRA – in the film but what's come out is fascinating and uh yeah and i've i keep waiting for the, the next thing to drop on that. well yeah i mean I, I think that there there could easily be a part two of this because you're gonna have to the next year or so you might have to wrap a lot of things up um yeah and there's also i mean it's not just the ira I mean, there's stuff that hasn't come out uh yet about their sort of trolling operations i mean even internally they have mobile trolling operations that they move around uh because so much of it's pamphleting so there's a there's a huge trolling operation that we're not even looking at. Uh, I think that IRA is the big one. I think that there's a couple other big ones, but I think that there is the amount that is happening. I think that we haven't scratched the surface of. And, and, and 
a lot of that, though, is internal to Russia. And I think it's important for people to realize that, um, while your audience probably knows this, but Russia really uh, did active measures on its own people before they did it elsewhere. Putin did all of these things domestically before bringing them to Europe and America. Um, and, and so I think that, you know, when you want to look where he's going, you can kind of look at what he's doing at home. Yeah, I mean, and, and and we are kind of a fertile country for these kind of operations. I mean, it didn't it didn't take much for us to start yelling at each other about Seth Rich and Pizzagate, and for the people at Charlottesville to be yelling Russia as our friend and having tortures and rallies and killing people. I mean, it, it's not like we needed a big push to get to this point. No, I, I think it's because we we as Americans have never had to deal with that. We've never had a hostile power on our border before. So we've never had that sort of you know influence of like there is a, a opposition party right next to you, or opposition country rather right next to you that is going to try to change the opinions of your your population, and that's a thing that especially Eastern Europe has had to deal with for a very long time. So I, I think that in a weird way it's almost harder to do it on them than it is to us because we are just sort of caught up pants down completely. Well, how much you, you there's a slight mention in the movie about actual intelligence officers being infiltrated in the United States. Uh, you, you have a headline from, I think, like the New York Post, which eh, but you talk it has the word infested. And I think that's a tricky word. But there's certainly many intelligence officers here in the United States and, and arguably and, and several people have made this argument more than there's ever been before. Yeah, and, and that's, I mean, that was, the, the more than ever before was the part we were taking from the Post. Maybe we should use about other publication, but the reason we felt comfortable using it is that is just what we heard from everybody. Yeah. I mean, you know, the in this, and also, but I think it's important to realize that what that means is different than what it meant during the Cold War. Right. Uh, so, you know, if you're going to have, a, you know, an illegal a, a intelligence officer in America during the Cold War, that was a serious operation. That was not easy to do. Uh, it was not easy to finance. It was not easy to get, you know, signals back and forth. Uh, what has precipitated is not just that they're on the offensive, but that it's so much easier to get them over here. Um, and so I, I think that while on one hand it, it is frightening and it should be frightening that there's more uh, than there ever have been, on another hand it would be kind of surprising if there weren't. Well, I mean, I, I'm from South Florida originally, and there's an extraordinary amount of Russian millionaires and now billionaires who are moving into that area, and certainly not just Sunny Isles, but Miami Beach and everywhere else as well. Sure. And, you know, you, you mentioned in the film, and, and, you know, kind of the 1990s Russian version of the Mariel Boatlift, where the yeah. Russians brilliantly open up their prisons and just let all their mobsters come to the United States. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that certainly happened in the 80s, and, it's, uh, and that was the big sort of turn of the Russian mob ending up in Brighton Beach. Um, and, it, you know, smart move on both hands, you know. Um, and so I think that that was a huge part of it. But also, I think, and I think that that really opened the door for well, we're going to have to get used to the population because I think it is a growing trend, which is somebody who is not an intelligence officer but who operates on behalf of them. For example, like the Russian mafia laundering money into America. Will that make them intelligence officers? Does that make them agents of their intelligence services? Or are they members of the market? And I think that uh, with China and Russia going forward, this is going to be a continuous problem that we're going to have to deal with is if there's a gray line of a government-friendly person coming into the country, how is that person treated? Uh, and how, how do we deal with that issue if governments are, for example, expecting information about a country back if they're going to let you leave the soil? 
Um, and so I think that, that while that is not, we're not completely there yet with Russia where everyone believes has to do that, certainly if you're a person of influence, there's an expectation uh, that that's going to happen. And it's easily happening in China as well. Uh, and so I think that that's going to be a continuous concern of the sort of non-intelligence officer, intelligence officer, the non-state actor, state actor. Um, and, yeah. Is, is it possible, you, you make some, I, I would say, not subtle hints. I think there's pretty strong hints that the president is knee-deep in in this kind of corruption and certainly tied to Russia in several ways, whether it's for the Deutsche Bank or being bailed out by Russian mobsters. Do you hold out the possibility that Donald, he's an intelligence word, certainly one that was coined by the Russians, that the president is a useful idiot versus being directly tied to any shenanigans going on? No. And the reason is this is that I think that we as citizens, I don't know if anything's possible, but the reason it seems tremendously unlikely to me is that we as, as citizens of President Trump see a guy who doesn't know anything about policy. He doesn't know anything about you know government or history or foreign countries or anything like that. And we kind of assume that he doesn't know anything. But when you talk to people that have worked with him, what they tell you is he knows every single thing that is happening in his organization. That that is the only thing that he was obsessed with. Uh, if you go through his building, he can tell you what, what the floors are made out of, what the table, where the tables come from. He knows who's working on it. And so it doesn't seem plausible to me that his entire organization could make a wild shift to taking in sort of Russian post-Soviet money uh, from incredibly sketchy sources, many of whom he knows very well personally, without him knowing what it was doing. Well, but knowing doesn't necessarily mean complicity in, you know, throwing an election and, and being involved in helping them to get him elected. Okay, well, sorry, we're talking, sorry, we're talking about different... Uh, sorry, oh, I'm sorry. More the early, early, yeah, yeah. Uh, sort of laundering years. Well, for the second part, uh, for that, I think that uh, it seems incredibly unlikely to me because, well, what do you mean by a useful idiot? I mean, I think that Donald Trump Jr. certainly called him up. I think that's the, that is the unidentified number. Like, after Donald Trump Jr. got the email about the Russian state helping the Trump campaign, that would mean Donald Trump Jr. is no longer a useful idiot, certainly. Like, he knew it was in an email that the Trump, Russian right. state was helping him. So we have to think that he didn't tell his father. The other thing that's important about, about that email is just, just imagine that somebody wrote you an email that said, okay, so as part of China and its support for your podcast, we're going to give you this information. Wouldn't you say, wait, what's this about China's support for my podcast? <laughs> like, it doesn't, he doesn't even ask. It just sounds great. Uh, so with that, with the fact that he called an unregistered, or a, um, unlisted number afterwards and Trump used an unlisted number, the fact that he didn't work on the campaign, so I don't think he gets to tell the chairman of the campaign to go to a meeting unless dad said it was okay, uh, it seems beyond belief that he would not know about that or, or that Trump Jr. wouldn't have told him. And, in fact, he later, in a speech, a days later, said we're going to get this great information on Hillary Clinton. So I think that the idea that he didn't know, but everybody around him did, it, it just doesn't seem reasonable to me. Um, he, would, he was the guy that hired Manafort, you know? Uh, it, it seems like a wild coincidence that he's bringing all these guys around him that have wild connections to the Russians and not know about it. And if that's the case, then that's even worse, <laughs> frankly. It's not even worse, but it's, it's, I don't know that it's any better that he's just able to happen to have all of these Russian-connected guys put in his network without knowing about it. Uh, that's just frightening. Yeah, I apologize for the confusion. I have no doubt yeah. in my mind that there's 
he understood that there was shady Russian money coming into his condos back in the oh, 80s. Yeah. And I, yeah, it's clear. I mean, it's yes, that's that's clear. No, listen, it, it, it's, listen I, I, I could see a scenario wherein somebody wouldn't. Yeah. You know what I mean? I don't think it's an unreasonable question. I, I think that on both of those, I could absolutely see a scenario wherein one does not know. Just with the particulars and the specifics and the people here, it seems tremendously unlikely. Where do you where do you go next from this? I mean, I, this is obviously not going anywhere. This is going to be a major story until it stops being a major story. Whether that's twenty twenty four if he gets reelected in twenty twenty, or whether the House gets taken over by the Democrats and they start trying to impeach him for God only knows what evidence, or when the Mueller investigation, or whatever else. There's obviously going to be a closure to this. Are are you thinking about making a next film based on that second half? Well, right now we're doing, before the midterms, we are touring the film around. Uh, we're doing a, a screening every day in another city every day. Uh, so I have a lot of travel over the next two weeks. But so until that's done, <laughs> I, I have no plans for, uh, for another movie. Uh, I think that it's going to depend. You know what I mean? Like we're not going to probably jump into another film for the next three or four months. Um, and so I think it depends. I think that certainly there's, uh, multiple sequels that could be made, <laughs> different yeah. angles. Um, I think that there's certainly an interesting film in just the, what seems to be happening in Saudi Arabia as well, um, and where that fits in with it. Um, but I, I, I too early to say, and I, I haven't, I haven't extracted myself from this one. <laughs> so, uh, so and maybe I'll do a scripted thing and then come back with a doc. I, I don't know. I, I, right. You're catching me at a point where I'm like, I, I don't know what I'm doing next. But a lot of ideas, a lot of things, a lot of potential projects, but. We just got to get through this and get through the midterms, and then I will be concerned with uh, what happens next. Yeah, no, you're, you're overwhelmed with this. You don't want to even think about doing anything <laughs> else. I get it. Um, so Jack Bryan is the filmmaker. The The documentary is Active Measures. It's I watched it on Hulu, but it's available all over on different streaming services. And I think in New York and L.A. right now is where it's limited. But you're... It, w- it was. It, it, it's out now. It, it, it's been a few weeks, uh, but now it's out of theaters. It's just, just uh, platforms. And, and our tour. You can check right. uh, our, our Twitter or Facebook for our tour date. Yeah, but it was, again, it was easy for me just if you got Hulu or something else just to pop it up, watch it. Like, even, I don't care if you're coming from a pro Donald Trump, right Republican view. Um, the the Russia stuff itself in this is, is worth watching. And please, again, don't send me in damn angry emails until you've watched it and actually know what you're complaining about. Because I think when you do. Hey. You'll be convinced at least that uh, it's worth having this conversation. And, and also, just to sorry to, to, to another point of that for Trump supporters, like it's important be, for, to watch. I think because this is all going to come out anyway. No. Like this is all. This is. I'm not breaking any news here. This is all going to happen. And if you want to not get caught with your pants down when it does, maybe get a little preview of it. Awesome. Well, Jack, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTL SpyCast. That's INTL SpyCast. Talk to you next week.